Hi everyone, I'm Claire Liu and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team, software that helps managers really become better leaders. We give you tools to help you run better one-on-one -on -one meetings, build rapport in your team, and get status updates. And today on The Heartbeat, I am ecstatic, truly, to have this guest on the show. I read her book at the end of last year and it absolutely blew my mind. So it's a complete pleasure to have on the show today. Calling in from New Zealand, in fact, we have Jennifer Garvey Berger, who is the author of Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, How to Thrive in Complexity. And this is Jennifer's third book. And she's also the CEO of Cultivating Leadership, which is an organizational leadership and development company. And so, Jennifer, thank you so much for being here. And are you ready for this one question that I'm just going to give to you live? <laughs> I'm super excited. I think it's delightful to be here, Clara. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, okay. Here's the question, Jennifer, that I've been asking leaders for almost the past three years on the heartbeat. And it is, what is one thing or maybe several things that you wish you would have learned earlier when it comes to being a successful leader? It's mm, a great question. Um, so the first thing that pops into my mind is, um, I wish that I had known more about power and been less afraid of power. Um, that, that has been, uh, that has been, a a real journey for me as a leader is to understand and stand in power and not, um, do the... I don't know. I think it's a more female thing of like mm. brushing away power or thinking that, um, that when people use power, they necessarily use power over. And, um, and I always wanted to be more collaborative. I wanted to be more connected. And so this idea that power is necessarily disconnecting is a myth. I wish I had sort of discovered as a myth earlier in my in my career. Mm, that power is disconnecting. Mm. I, uh, I can so relate to that. Even actually when you said the word power, I almost felt something instinctually. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if folks who are listening did the same thing as well, where it's almost like it's a dirty word. Yeah. We're not yeah. supposed to like power and we're not supposed to use power. And I, Tell me a little bit about, I mean, have you, when for you as a leader has this become a realization that obviously in your work, right, obviously consulting and coaching uh, numerous executives, when has this really gotten in the way? How does this manifest? So I think that, um, as you said, like we get this almost embodied reaction, like, yeah. um, you know, and, and aphorisms like uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, you know, they, yep. they pop into our mind, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think we are taught, and I think particularly women are taught, but I think we're all taught sure. that power is a little bit dirty and that people who want it, we, they're like power hungry, power grabbing, right. you know, like these are very unpleasant ideas. Yep. And, um, and certainly lead to a sense of like power might be very disconnecting, right? Power is about putting me first and you like somewhere else. And, um, 
And I think I really had this idea of power. I started my career as a teacher and a professor, and I tried to um, democratize the classroom. I eliminated grades in my graduate school classroom so that we would be able to have real dialogue together about what was working and what wasn't working. And I, I, I kept trying to flatten the power huh. difference. Yeah. And then um, when we started this company, there were four of us and then there were six of us and then there were many of us. And then um, uh, and, and we were always really clear. We were just one among equals. There was no power difference between any of us. And we were all kind of the same. And again, this idea of like very much flattening out power mm-hmm. differences. Um, and then it became it became clear that there was that actually power is a force that can be used for good as well as evil. Mm. And that we were just looking kind of, I particularly was just looking at the shadow side of that. And I was just aware of and afraid of the shadow side of that. And if you're afraid of the shadow side of something, it can be very hard to get to the light of it. And so to use power as a force for connection, power as a force for helping other people be more powerful. Um, Bill Torbert, the developmentalist Bill Torbert, has this idea about mutually transformative power. And Mm. you can't exercise that if you're afraid of the whole power thing. You just put the power thing in a box and you close the box and then you don't have access to any of it. And it creates Mm -hmm. these like very weird kind of like powerlessness in a senior team, in a in an organization. I see it in leaders all the time. And there's something about stepping up and standing in your power and saying, I'm going to lead something here. I'm going to make something here. And I'm going to create the conditions for us to make it together. Right. Like for me, that's mutually transformative power. This is the... Leadership that calls on others to be bigger, not power like if I get more, you get less, but power is as I stand in mine, you stand mm-hmm. more in yours. Absolutely. I, I'm hearing two things that I think are just revelatory, Jennifer. The first is this idea that the intent for which you you use power has everything to do with whether or not it's mutually transformative or not. Mm-hmm. And that actually... The discerning of that intent is what helps a person be able to harness power's power, so to speak. And that without clarifying what that intention is, without stepping into it, without willing to embrace, as you put it, the light side, not just seeing the dark. If we don't do that, you describe this paralysis. And I found that uh, actually really very much echoed in your book in one of the... um, in one of the mind traps that you talked about, uh, this paralysis, and you called it, it's a mind trap of agreement. Mm. And I was thinking about how oftentimes the reason the leaders that I often work with and myself shy away from power is because we want everyone to get along. Yeah. We, want everyone we don't to want to be, be separate. Exactly. We don't want to be separate. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And you put that so well in, in, in using power to actually connect. And if you don't mind, there was something that you that you wrote that just really, really helped reframe 
how the opposite of agreement isn't necessarily conflict for conflict's sake, but something different. Do you mind if I if I read something to you? I'd love to. Sure, I've never had anybody do that. Let's do it. Well, here we go. Here's a first. So, um, one of the most helpful questions I've ever heard in the conflict space comes from executive coach Catherine Fitzgerald. Her question for helping clients deal with conflict was not about whether the client would win the conflict or whether the conflict itself was worthy. It was about the effect on the relationship. And it wasn't about ruining the relationship, like, are you willing to risk the relationship for this conflict? It was about deepening it. Confront only to deepen, she used to say, or could this conflict serve to deepen your relationship? Isn't that a great question? It's like one of my all-time favorite questions. And I live by this. I live by this. I mean, you can see by my book, I just put a big star and and bookmarked this. Tell me a little bit about, in regards to power, how asking that question is useful. Could this conflict serve to deepen your relationship? I mean, I think that the, the, you're you're absolutely right that this power thing and the conflict thing are cousins, right? Yes. And they they're in this family of stuff that I think we tend to think of as relationship diminishing, as um, unpleasant, as unhelpful, and as to be avoided if possible. Like good people don't have these things in their lives. Oh yeah, I love that. Right. But actually, these are incredibly fertile spaces of um, possibility of spark of um, unrealized potential in the world. Right. Like what is conflict about? Conflict is about passion. It's about caring deeply for something. Yes. Right. And so to try and dampen that down means that you have to either. I'm asking you to ignore your passion or I'm asking me to ignore my passion or I'm asking us to somehow pretend that our passion is the same, which would be kind of a shame because diversity is so important in complexity. And so if we're going to pretend that our passion is the same and not get into conflict for that, like that's actually a big loss to us as a, as a team, as a relationship, as friends. And so this idea of, can we use can we use power to make other people more powerful? Can we use conflict to deepen our relationship, to expand mm. what's possible for us, to build new ideas together? Like I, I think there is a there is something about giving these bring these shadowy things yeah. back into the light and making them tools for our mutual use. Absolutely. You used a word in regards to conflict, Jennifer, that's just really resonating with me, which is you said caring and passion, that it's actually a signal that there's something that matters to us and willing to expose that to conflict is actually a willingness just to to act on that. And so I, I, I was even thinking, and then in regards to power, how it's this... And, and you, you know, you actually touch a little bit on the, this in, the, in the, your book as well, but just how sort of renaming 
what it is that the light side of each of these concepts are. So for conflict, it's not conflict per se, but it's actually a demonstration of, of care. Mm-hmm. And power maybe isn't power in the way that we usually think about it, but maybe it's a demonstration of strength and of mm-hmm. connection. That's a word that you used. And so I, yeah, I so appreciate you you using using that word really broadens, broadens my frame of thinking about both of those pieces. That's a great question. I never talk about this because people never ask that question. So it's a very <laughs> helpful it's I a love it. Question. Well, Jennifer, I like I said, I literally I devoured your book over. <laughs> it was uh, you know over the holidays at the end of the year, um, and was very curious to know so many pieces, which is why I wrote to you and said, "Oh my gosh, can I interview you?" But the first place I would love to start is, where did you get the idea for this book? In the sense that you know, obviously you are coaching tons of folks. This is in the work that you do. But the idea of, of delineating mind traps and these specific ones, how did this come to you? Yeah, it was, so the idea itself came, I was at a party with some, with family um, in Seattle, actually. And we were standing around talking about things. And um, two of my fabulous relatives uh, were talking about, my book and what would my next book be? My last book was called Simple Habits for Complex Times. I read it with um, one of my best friends and business partners, Keith Johnston. And the um, and they started joking, these two women started joking with each other about the thing that they mostly learned about complexity from me is that they didn't understand complexity. And um, it was like way over their head. And I thought, oh my God, what an epic fail on my part to have attempted to make complexity because in simple habits Keith and I are trying to make complexity like very very actionable and approachable like Mm. this is the point of that book that book is like we will diffuse this into something that you can use yeah Um, and for these and for many leaders like it's you know it's sold many many copies and I get people who love this book and so I think it does work for a lot of people but there is definitely a population that it totally missed and so I knew another book needed to happen um and the the way that book became mind trap so I knew what I wanted to do is take like um sort of like the fruits of the trees of development and complexity and like just see if we could present the fruits like what is the like yes there's this whole root system of theory yes there's this very strong trunk of practices and experience Mm. but what would the fruits be like if I just wanted to hand you without you having to worry about the tending of the tree, if I just wanted to hand you, like, what are the most important things I've ever learned? And so as I was distilling those, talking to people, doing um, focus groups with people in my firm, and also going back over all of the notes I ever took at a senior team meeting of any of the senior teams I've ever worked with, Mm. uh, I found that there were these, like, recurring patterns of, smart, capable, devoted leaders who were trying to make changes and very successfully making changes. And then there were like these, um, 
these repeatable holes they fell into. Hmm. And, um, and as I tried to investigate, like, what is this thing? The thing that I found is that these are each of them. I was shocked. Actually, each of them is, uh, like inside our physical neurobiological system. Mm. Like it is not just a mindset issue. This is mm. a thing your body does yep. and it does it to protect us from being swamped by the complexity in the world. It does it to make us faster, more nimble, more agile in a world where yesterday is a lot like tomorrow. And so yeah. in most of the ways humans evolved, the yesterdays were probably going to be a lot like tomorrow. And so that connection between the past and the future became really baked into our system. Um, now we're in a world where... I don't know about you, but in my world, I have no idea what the future is going to be like, like zero idea what the future is going to be. Like. You and I both, and I've been feeling a whole lot of other people. Yeah. Like, I don't even know like when I'm going to get on an airplane again, which I haven't said I in know. many Never. years. Yeah. yeah right. Um, so actually that way our system has of protecting us against mm -hmm. complexity, completely unhelpful now, like absolutely unhelpful. So we need to find a way to see that that's happening and then to make a different move to like in that way to say, Oh, thank you. Thank you body for shielding right. me from this. But actually this is a thing I need. And um, so I need to escape this shield. Yes. Yes. And it, it shortchanges us because we're reacting to wanting to not get hurt or what we think, you know, hurts. We're reacting to what we feel like might be too much effort and too much of a burden. And so we shortchange ourselves. And what I found just really phenomenal about the way you described the things we are trying to protect, Jennifer, and the pitfalls we fall into is that, I mean, I read a lot of, of literature on leadership and I read a lot of research and you know and I do a ton of writing myself and what I just found so beautiful about what you did is that each one is extremely precise and insightful and at the same time and I literally did this when I was going through the book I could think of a person a real you know a leader who I had worked with in the past for every single mind trap mm. who exemplified every single one. And I noticed that there were two in particular that I really felt like I was committing a lot myself. And yeah. that's, that's what really got me was just how sort of universal and how um, just these are exemplified so clearly in, in people. And so th the reason I share all that is because I, I wanted to ask, while you were writing this, were there some mind traps that were more difficult to write about because you felt like you hadn't experienced them as closely? And then were there some where it was almost you could, you know, you had worked with a lot of leaders in this one in particular? Just curious your experience of trying to explain each of these, each of these mind traps to us. It's mm, a super interesting question. The So I think it's true. So I I became, over the course of doing the research, I became totally convinced that we all have all of these. Right. 
um, that they are, they really are in our system. And just like we have reflexes that if you hit your knee in a particular place, your leg does a particular thing. Yes. Right. I think we have these as reflexes. And as you say, some of them catch us more than others. Right. So we might be all caught by all of them, at least a little because they're just mm-hmm. automatic. Mm-hmm. But some of them are more tied up in our identity, I think, yep. than others are. And so those become like the hardest ones to escape from. Yes. And um, and writing them, I definitely saw that in me, like particularly, you know, this this book has some description and then some story. Yes. And the story was easier to write. Like some of those, some of the um, story bits are just a little bit autobiographical, right? Sure. And a little close uh, to home, just coincidentally, you know? Just coincidentally. Yeah, yeah just. They say write what you know. And right. um, so, yeah, some of them were very easy. And some of them are farther from me. And mm-hmm. there I draw on my experience with clients because I've seen all of these. I've coached, as you say, I've coached all of mm-hmm. these. Mm-hmm. Uh, but some of them are less kind of trappy for me. Yep. And um, some of them are much more trappy for me. Oh, totally. I mean, I can even, so just to, to share with you, for me, oh, the one that really got me was the mind trap where you have a desire for control. Mm. That, I was like, oh, that, that, that really hits close to home. And then the one that I was like, oh, I actually feel like I've got a good handle on this was uh, the mind trap of agreement. I, mm. I was like, oh, that one I fall less, like all of them, I probably fall the least in, into that. Um, and so I, I'm curious, you know, for folks who do react to your book, is there one in particular that you feel like most leaders struggle with more than, than any of them? Well, it's funny in this moment, mm. right? Like in this moment, I'm finding that control yes. and the one I call the mind trap of rightness yes. is these two are particularly grabby right now when everybody has an opinion about everything, mm. even though like we have no idea what's going to happen. And everybody wants to put their hands on this thing and make something happen. Yes. And like, there's no way to do that. And so yes. I'm watching leaders really flailing in that place. Absolutely. Well, let's, if you don't mind, do you mind if we dive into it a little bit yeah. and, and, and what you're seeing? I mean, so here's, here's the way that I related to this mind trap of control, which is that we are conditioned as leaders to have even the belief that control is what defines our success. So it starts there, right? And uh, the thing that I really appreciated that you broke down is when we realize that we don't have control over a thing, which, by the way, we have control over almost nothing. I, right. I mean, including Certainly ourselves. Right. There's no right. control over anything of complexity by definition. Right. right. And including ourselves, there's a degree to which we don't fully control and a lot is automatic. And I mean, for folks who want to get really deeply philosophical, we could talk about free will and we can, you know, we can go all the way down, down that rabbit hole and sort of what degree of control we actually have. But I, what I, what I found really useful was you talked about how the tendency of when we feel like there's not something that we can control is we just break it down into something smaller that we then feel yeah. like can control and yeah, then something we'll even smaller. Tell me, yeah, tell me how do, how does one break and, and you talk about this in the book, but for folks, you know, who, who haven't had the opportunity yet, how does one break out of that? 
Yeah, I, I just think the first thing to do is to notice that we're doing it, right? For all of these mind traps, just yeah. watching yourself and developing that little part of yourself who can look at you and smile. There you are. Mm. There you are. You're doing that again, aren't you? That's that's this little voice we're trying to develop, just a little bit of the observer of you. And then as you begin to catch yourself doing it, I I, so I find questions really powerful. Like the, yes. um, I find that the questions we carry shape who we are and what we do. Yes. And so a question like, what can I make happen here? How will I know? How will I measure it? Like all those questions come out of a mindset that says I can put my hands on something and make a thing happen. Yes. But most of what we care about in organizations, trust, psychological safety, innovation, mm. even things like profit, um, customer satisfaction, you know, most of the things we care about in organizations and virtually everything we care about in our lives, joy, like happy, well-adjusted children. Yes you know, like strong, healthy bodies, most of those things we can influence, but we cannot control. Mm. And so shifting our thinking from uh, how do I control this, make it happen, measure it, to how do I influence it? If I'm a leader, how do I create the conditions for goodness here? So that I'm, instead of like, looking at the blade of grass and getting it to grow. I'm actually looking at the soil and I'm looking at the seed quality and I'm looking Absolutely. at the water and I'm looking at the, the ecosystem and tending to the ecosystem. And just knowing that whenever I have the impulse to control one thing mm. or to measure one thing or to focus on one thing, if the problem is really complex I'm doing the wrong thing. Like it's just right. super straightforward. You know, if, if I'm Absolutely. trying to fix my health and I focus only on calories, right. like, yeah, they're measurable, they're controllable. That's the wrong thing. Right. I, I mean, I, so I, I love that analogy actually around health because no one you talk to would say, Oh, if you eat broccoli tomorrow, the next day you are a hundred percent healthy, right? That's right. Right. No one would ever argue that or, Oh, if you do, you know, a hundred jumping jacks tomorrow, then the next day after that, all of a sudden you're going to be strong and, and yet, you're done. And you're right. And, and you're, you're done. Right. And yet we apply, I apply a very similar mindset to what we want to be true in our, our company. So for example, we have leaders who come to us and they'll say, Claire, I want to build trust in my team. And so I've been holding one-on-one -on -one meetings. Great. You don't just do them once, right? And it's not just the one thing that, that you do. And so it goes back to this idea that the thing that we're often, I think, trying to optimize for is those are all lagging indicators, right? Mm -hmm. The ideal sort of strength or weight or whatever health metric you want to use, it's a lagging indicator for all, all whole set of other inputs and conditions, to your point, that you're creating. And I think it's the same thing as a leader. The ideas of trust, psychological safety, high performance in a team, those are lagging indicators of things that we are putting in way ahead of time and practicing over and over again. And I, I mean, I think you mentioned this in your book. So what it ends up becoming is it's about creating the patterns 
mm-hmm. rather than the focus on those outcomes. And, God, and it's, it's about that hard to remember. Sweet, right? Like yes. to be understanding what are the factors here I can influence. So one-on-one meetings are awesome because you can have them right. and they are trust building. Great, you can influence that condition. What other conditions right. can you influence? Like what? what's the suite yes. of conditions you can influence? Yes. And how might we be living our I think we would feel so much more powerful mm-hmm. if we had a sense of ourselves as agents of influence hmm. making good things happen in all these different areas instead of like there's a way the human mind separates segments boils down and yes. then we're like I am going to have the single point focus on hmm. this thing and I'm going to nail this one thing right and we do that it's almost always has these like crazy perverse unintended consequences um, because humans are not single points of focus and the challenges we have are so multidimensional. Absolutely. And it just, and and here's the thing that it brings me back to when you say that Jennifer is what you were talking about earlier about how these are embodied reactions we have to complexity. So we're doing that because we're like, Oh my God, there's too many. Like if I try to see the whole picture, it's too much, right? It's, it goes against a story that I'm telling myself of what I want to be true. It goes against a story of what I feel like we're capable of doing. And so I think I, that question, to your point of questions being such an awakening piece of all of this, the question of what are the conditions that I have actual potential influence over, I think is is absolutely key. I share a lot with, with the leaders that we work with, especially those who find themselves micromanaging or in these you know times of remote work feeling like, you know, we just moved all our meetings to Zoom and I'm just trying to, you know, ah, you know, how do you keep tabs on everyone more, Claire? Is this something, you know, I hear a lot of and it's like, well, you cannot control your employees and you cannot do that anymore in remote, you know, in a remote environment than in person. And rather, and this is a variation, you know, of what you said, which is the question becomes, well, how do you create an environment for people to do their best work? Is that kind of environment engendering the type of work you want to see true? And, and, and it goes back to the mind trap of control. That's, that's what we're getting sucked into. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the human desire to want to control something is totally understandable. It's why one of the things I write about is self-compassion. Like, how do we look yes. at this not as, like, a, a thing we should feel ashamed of? Like, shame on mm. you, Claire, for really wanting right. control, right? Yeah. Shame on those micromanaging leaders. Actually, we feel nervous hmm. and to soothe ourselves, yeah. we try to grab control of things. It helped 300 years ago that was a useful strategy for most people yes 3,000 years ago that was a super useful strategy for most people yep. it's just not a useful strategy if you're an executive or a team leader or a parent in the modern world this is not a useful strategy but the fact that your body goes to it when you feel anxious mm. and that happens automatically this is completely understandable. This makes perfect sense given yes. we have been over generations. Absolutely. We just need to on purpose evolve ourselves to the next place for us. Oh, I love that. I love, love that sentiment, Jennifer. 
I also, I'm so grateful that you brought in this concept of self-compassion and you talk about it in the book as well, because I think, I think, you know, for some, some folks who might read it might feel a little woo-woo, right? Oh, self-love. You know, someone I, I hear in my, my yoga class or whatever, right? And yet, a huge barrier for so many leaders, myself included, is the fact that we judge ourselves way too quickly and as a result, create unnecessary pressure and as a result, hurts our own performance. And the lever there is, well, we're not treating ourselves with enough. I think you call it curious kindness in your book. We, we also, when we don't feel compassion for ourselves because we're like pushing that perfect energy, Mm-hmm. We don't have compassion for other people, and we get there judgy we and micromanagey there. Yep. And so I will often have leaders who come to me because they've gotten feedback. You know, they've gotten feedback sure. that they're harsh or they're over the top perfectionistic, and they're mm-hmm. strangling their teams. And when you talk to these leaders, they are not like humans who are like, "Yeah, I hate people." They're like trying to do their best, right? They care deeply about the people around them. They care deeply about what they're on about. Mm -hmm. And, and yet they're driving themselves so hard that one of the outcomes of that self drive tends to be to push in a way that can be really judgmental and not listening very well into others. Right. So these things that we turn on ourselves, we also often turn out to the world. Absolutely. Self-compassion is an extraordinary lever for that. Like it really because we can practice it with us all the time as we see our own humanity and as we're able to smile at it, we're able to smile at the humanity of others. And suddenly, now that we're not like so clenched tight Suddenly we can be more agile in relationships. We can confront to deepen instead of to win. Right. We can and that makes the all the difference picture. in the world. Oh my God. Yeah. Such, such a difference. I think even uh, when, you know, if you were to talk to a leader, he says, what is a, and you were to ask them, you know, what is a, what is a bad day feel like? And they would describe that tense, balled up, clenching sort of sentiment. And then if you were to ask, what does a good day feel like? Usually, and I'll speak for myself, so I'll do some projecting, it's easeful. There's Mm -hmm. some looseness there. There's some space. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, one thing that I'm, I'm curious about Jennifer, and I just know so many folks struggle with this, myself included, is how do you remember to come back to this? Because sure, you and I sitting here, right, intellectually, I'm like, yeah, self-compassion, yeah, space, yeah, just don't get so caught up in in needing to be right or control, right? And And it makes so much sense, and it clicks. And yet, the week goes on, and you and I were talking on a Tuesday here, maybe it's Thursday, and something's happened, and... You're in a meeting, you've been in Zoom all day, and a client says something, uh, someone turned in something late, you're behind, the day's almost over, you have a million and a half emails, and we forget. What do we do to remember? And we we forget. Yeah. 
I mean, I think there are lots of strategies. This is one of these complex questions, right? And Mm. so we need to build an ecosystem around us. Uh, One of the strategies is to have somebody to talk to about it, Mm. right? To just check in with at the end of a week, even if it's... So I'm a real believer in peers just being able to listen for five minutes to each other Mm. and say, what did you learn about yourself this week? What was really delightful for you this week? What was really crappy for you this week? And like just that much where if we could just sit together and have that conversation, it doesn't take very long for like 10 Mm -hmm. minutes, then I would start to develop a little bit more of this awareness. And the first, the first sign of it is not me saying in the moment after I read, after I see that I have a million and a half emails, then I say, oh, I'm probably going to be controlling now. No, no, no. The, that Thursday passes and Friday yeah. passes and then it's Saturday and I'm thinking back over the week and I have kind of a bad feeling about Thursday and I'm running through my mind. Why do I have this mm. bad feeling about Thursday? And then I think, oh, you know, I was super controlling on Thursday. Like I was just over the charts controlling on Thursday. Yeah. So what we want to do is once you have the concept, then you can have the realization. You can put words onto it. You can actually yeah. see a thing that happened and it makes sense to you in a way, like yes. becomes a color on our spectrum, right? Yes. So you say, oh, yeah, that's red. I have a word for that. I can name that. And then we want to shrink the amount of time it takes from when we experience the thing until when we notice that we've done it. And maybe at first it's four or five days. And then maybe it shrinks and you realize it still, you realize it Friday morning and then you can reach out to somebody and say, oh, yesterday in that meeting, I said you needed to like get me a deck by the end of the day. That's ridiculous. I'm so sorry. Like you don't need to do that. So that shrinks it some. Mm. And then maybe it's after the meeting and then you can pick up the phone and call somebody until finally after, you know, some time and very many practices, it can, we can catch ourselves doing it in the meeting. In the meeting. And you, I know you hear a lot about teams. One of the things that's so important is that we have this, like we don't need to do this alone. It's not even helpful if we do it alone, right? That's not even good for us. So me setting off to like conquer my thing, this is not a good, this is not a good look, right? Yeah. The question is, how can we collectively support each other's development? And so how does a team hear about this set of ideas, know what I'm working on, Mm -hmm. help offer feedback in a gentle way, maybe a light, even playful way? Mm -hmm. And how can we begin to look at ourselves collectively and help each other develop these muscles? Yes. And we are not meant to develop in isolation. We're no. meant to develop in community. Absolutely. And in, 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 truth be told, reality is based off that feedback we're getting from others. So we grow not in tandem with reality, but in our own distorted view of it. If we're just off burrowing away on our lone adventure looking to conquer exactly this right. thing and this demon there's, and yeah, yeah there's so much people. we can't see about ourselves we need exactly. the 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 mirrors the support of the people around us 
And that for me is what a really high functioning team is. It's a team where we are all yes. committed to the collective development of every person in the room mm, or, beautiful. On the Zoom. <laughs> or on the zoom or on the zoom these days. I, the last thing I just want to, want to highlight from, from everything you just shared there, Jennifer was just to be willing to ask folks that question. What did you learn this week? Be willing to take that five minutes. I just really want to underline that for folks who are listening. I mean, I think if there's one thing folks might be able to, to take away, it could be that to help create that space, to have, help have that reflection. Well, Jennifer, here's the thing. I could literally sit here and talk to you for hours and bludgeon you with more quotes that I'm sure <laughs> you don't want to hear from your own book um, just because I got so much out of it. I do want to ask before we part, for for people who, you know, so many managers that we work with, they say, yeah, I feel stuck. I feel like, you know, I'm getting caught. I feel depleted. If there's one thing you could share with them of, hey, start here, and maybe it's something we already touched on, but also, you know, if there's anything else that we didn't, if there's one thing that you would say to folks and, and managers who just feel really trapped, mm. what might that be? Where would they start? I mean, people feel trapped for so many different reasons, yes. right? So, um, so I guess to begin, you would need to start an inquiry with yourself about what was really going on for you. Mm. And I think we very often have emotions or experiences or feelings in our body that we don't even really notice. We have this sense like, I feel bad today, but even our yeah. language about it is coarse. And like, what does that even mean? Right. Yeah. It's like you go to the doctor and you say, I feel bad. Like what's a doctor going to do with that? Right. Yes. And, and yet we could be the curious investigators of ourselves like as a personal story since we've moved to um, zoom all the time and I've stopped traveling I do a lot of teaching of leadership programs by webinar right mm -hmm. and I have been finding that those webinars are very depleting right like oh, yeah. I work really hard for them and then it's like all this energy out and these compressed times and then I beat myself up because the at between minute 26 and minute 31, it got a little slow and I might've lost, like it's, so I've been watching myself and I get really amped up about this and I, um, and I pour over like, what could I have done differently? And okay. So then I get to the end of the day and I think I'm exhausted and yeah. I don't feel good about myself mm. and I don't feel good about the job that I did today. Yeah. Okay. So those are kind of crude ways of making sense of what happened to me. How do I get a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more curious, a little bit more compassionate with me and start to really ask, okay, what's going on for me? What really is the discomfort here? Yep. Can I name an emotion to myself yes. about feeling? And then like, is this really about the thing I did or is it about a perfection standard that I have when I've been doing this new platform for 10 minutes and really I expect it to be as good right. as it was this other thing that I've been doing yeah. for 25 years. And yeah. so um, as <laughs> course, I begin to, of course to, you should, right? Right. Of course, of course, because you should, just should. Um, 
And so as I begin to notice it, it gives me like a little space between being the frustrated, uncomfortable, depleted person and watching the frustrated, depleted, uncomfortable Mm, person. And that little space gives me room to make small adjustments, small adjustments like um, taking a walk in the middle of the day, small adjustments like noticing what really makes me delighted in a webinar and planning that in, Mm -hmm. small adjustments like um, noticing what I need from my colleagues might be different now than it was before and asking for it. So it's not like there's any one miracle question or answer. Yep. It's more like the process of inqu- inquiring into ourselves actually makes the space for our evolution. That is incredible having the, and I'm not, I'm going to misquote you a little bit here, but the the process to inquire to yourself is what gives you the space for evolution. I, I internalize that for myself, Jennifer, as this distinction between damning myself, judging, Mm -hmm. being critical, saying, why do you feel bad? And then, you know, you do go into the spiral of feeling bad about feeling bad damning yourself versus discerning what Mm. is actually going on what how do I feel yeah if we could treat ourselves with love and curiosity Mm. we would bring that air into the world Mm -hmm. I often say to my clients you you would not be friends with a person who said to you the things you say to yourself exactly right like you would cut that person out of your life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. There so we go. how do we learn to be friends mm. with that internal monologue? How do we learn yeah. for that to be? Because it, it just wants to help us. Mm-hmm. How do we learn to teach it how to, mm-hmm. how to help us? And it starts there. Mm. Jennifer, thank you so much. A real, real honor to have you here. Um, for folks who are listening, if you haven't already gone onto Amazon or your favorite local online book retailer and bought this while we were talking, you absolutely should. Um, truly, truly probably, I mean, the best book on leadership I read last year. So so thank you. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for sharing all of your insights. Um, this is the third book that Jennifer has also written. So please be sure to check out her other books. And um, yeah, so appreciate you having you being here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Claire.